He is risen. And so is this microphone. You have no idea in the first service, I got up and I was so excited because I'm usually just demoted to the handheld here and I got a chance to put on this Britney Spears microphone and when I came up to speak, uh, the very first word out of my mouth was like, and I was so sad I had to use a handheld for the rest of service. So Christ is risen, this microphone is risen and we are in business. It is weird to hear the word Pastor Paul. It's kind of like when somebody calls you Mr. or Mrs. for the first time, um, and you're like, that is my mom, or that is my dad. Um, And that is true for me. My dad was a pastor for 37 years, um, and he still travels and speaks at churches around the country. And my grandfather was a pastor before him. Uh, He was a part of the Assemblies of God. All that to say, um, please don't call me Pastor Paul. Um, (laughs) I should start by saying that it really is a privilege to get to stand here in this space and not just bore you with announcements. Um, I told my wife that I was going to open with that, and she said, yeah, now you just get to bore them with an entire sermon. (laughs) So really encouraged moving in to this morning. And last week, if you remember, Bishop Ed said, you know, we ought to sing more and preach less, and you're about to find out why. (laughs) So let's pray as we jump in this morning. God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for this day and for this moment. We give you thanks for the gift of one another. I ask that in this moment, you would open up the aperture of our souls that we might hear the word that you have for us. Give us ears to hear this morning in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, well, this week, I'm sure you all joined me in celebrating Ascension Day on Thursday. Where are my Ascension people? Um, It is one of the most overlooked holidays within the church calendar. You know, we as a community are more or less new to this idea of being oriented to the calendar. And so uh, we think of the big holidays or the big seasons like Advent and Lent and Easter. And tucked right there toward the end of Easter is this holiday called Ascension Day. And it's acknowledging this moment in which Christ ascends back to heaven. And if you're not careful, it's easy to conflate the ascension with absence, with this idea that like, Jesus is gone, and now what are we to do? But in reality, ascension is more about Christ ascending into heaven so that he can take on uh, this sort of cosmic Christ, this way in which he is not only present in heaven, but he is present everywhere. He permeates all things, so that no matter whether we find ourselves in heaven or in hell, in life or in death, in joy or in despair, Christ is with us. This is the heart of ascension, and that has absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about today. That they may be one as we are one. This is how our gospel text ends this week, and it's a verse that has in a lot of ways become central to the core and the fabric of sanctuary and who sanctuary is. Sanctuary is what we call a convergent community, 
And so this means that we are striving to be evangelical in our mission, charismatic in our experience and in our expression, and liturgical in formation. And we as a community are committed to living firmly at the intersection of these streams. And at the heart of convergence, the joining together of these three streams, is this big $5 word, ecumenism. Can you all say ecumenism? Ecumenism is this idea of celebrating and moving toward church unity. And unity has been a big deal to the church throughout the centuries. St. Augustine said, There is nothing more serious than the sacrilege of schism, because there is no just cause for severing the unity of the church. So this is why here at Sanctuary we participate in the prayers of the people. And in this moment, we lift these prayers up for the church, not only locally, but around the world. We pray for the church universal. This leads us to, in a few moments, someone is going to stand on this stage and lead us in the creeds. In the creeds, we are joining our voice with the churches and the communities of faith around the world in proclaiming what it is that we believe. We come to this table liturgy and we say, lift up your hearts where Christ in glory reigns, and we're nodding to the fact that we are not doing this here alone. We do this here in the presence of God. We do this here in the presence of the great cloud of witnesses. Ecumenism is acknowledging that we do not have a monopoly on faith. We are in this together, and we are bound to a tradition of faith and faithful practice, we belong to a body of believers. So here we find Jesus in John's gospel, and he's praying for his disciples. This is the moment right before Jesus is about to be uh, taken, he's about to be crucified, and he's praying for his disciples, knowing they're going to be scattered, they're going to be persecuted. In the coming moments, they're going to deny the very fact that they know him, And they will be forced to make the hard decisions that come along with being a follower of the way. And his prayer for his disciples is not that they will be saved from those things. Not that they would replace their doubt with certainty, but that they may be one. This is the prayer that Jesus has for his disciples. And this kind of union, this kind of oneness is different than the unity that we often look for. We look for unity in a different way, in some ways a less faithful way. The kind of union that Jesus imagines for his disciples is the kind of union smattered all over the Gospels, between fathers and prodigals, from lost sheep to lost coins, in the relationship between tax collectors and zealots, the dichotomy of rich Zacchaeus and poor Mary and Martha, all of these people find their place at the center of this singular person of Jesus. And when you look at these individuals that are coming from opposite ends of the spectrum, you start to realize the kind of hope and the kind of unity that Jesus is praying and hoping for the world. Like I said, we look for an easier kind of unity, one that's easy to find but is actually a less faithful kind of unity than the kind that Jesus hopes for the world. 
We look for unity in agreement. We look for unity in uniformity. But our unity is not defined by agreement. Our unity is not defined by uniformity. Our unity resists all of these ideas because they are the ideas that lead to tribalism. And if you remember, tribalism was a cycle that God first called Abraham to break. In Genesis 12, Abraham was called to leave his tribe, his nation, in order to go and form a new kind of people, a nation that would bless all the other nations. And this is something that people at that time did not do. Let's look at the text here in Genesis 12. It says, The Lord had said to Abram, who would become Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So we learn here in Genesis that Abraham leaves his father's household. He leaves everything familiar, and he sets out on this journey to a new land, trying to discern what it means to be a new people. But people didn't do that at this time. People at this time had a, what we refer to as a cyclical view of history, one in which everything that has happened is bound to happen again, and you are born somewhere into this cycle, and you will die somewhere inside of this cycle, this cycle of planting and harvesting and life and death. It was this endless cycle bound to repeat itself. But then what happens? Abraham leaves. And for the ancient world, this was a huge progressive leap forward in what it meant to be a human being. This meant that you weren't stuck. You didn't have to repeat everything that had already happened. You could go and do and be something new. The whole story of the Old Testament is this story of breaking cycles. We see this in Abraham being called to be a new nation. And we see this when God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. So in addition to this cyclical view of history in the ancient world, making sacrifices to gods is how you would have understood the world worked. Your survival which required things like rain and food and water and babies being born. All of this was dependent on forces that were always out of your control. And these forces were either on your side or they weren't. And so what did you do? You made sacrifices. The next time you have a harvest, you take a part of that harvest and you offer it on an altar as a sacrifice signifying your gratitude. If you offered a sacrifice, but it didn't rain, or the sun didn't shine, or the animals still got diseases, or there were not babies being born, obviously, you didn't offer enough. So you offer more and more and more, and you can hear how insane this sounds, right? Now, from the very beginning, this type of religion had this sort of built-in anxiety, and even when things were going well, how could you know that you sacrificed enough to show the gods how grateful you were? Were you grateful enough? Did you sacrifice enough? Did you give enough? 
You end up with anxiety either way. And so this is the culture in which God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son. And Abraham obviously is not shocked by this. He doesn't even bat an eye. The text tells us early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. God has just told Abraham to sacrifice his firstborn son. And Abraham is just like, all right, he's out there packing the car. Like, this is going to be a really gnarly family vacation, but I'm here for it. He doesn't think twice. So they go. Abraham obeys even though it seems like he is in on the joke from the very beginning. And God saves Isaac at the 11th hour. But when we read this story, our instinct should say, what kind of God demands the sacrifice of your firstborn son? And we get our answer in this text. Not this God. Other gods may demand sacrifice of your firstborn son, but not me. In fact, an angel appears to Abraham and tells him, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This God is different. This God provides. This God doesn't need you to do the giving. This God is the one who blesses, and now he is using you to bless the nations. And even though Abraham and the Israelites won't always get this right, They participate in cycles of violence and idolatry, but they keep coming back to this notion that this God of Abraham desires to bless them, and as a result, they will be a blessing to the world. God is and always has been all about breaking the cycles we find ourselves in, including the cycles of violence, the cycles of scapegoating, and cycles of tribalism, and all for the sake of unity. So what kind of unity does Jesus imagine for his disciples? And in a larger way, what kind of unity does he imagine for what would become this massive group of people that would be massively divided all over the world? I want to submit to you today three movements of unity that Jesus is calling us to step into. The first movement is this unity of heart, or what I want to refer to as the non-dual nature of the heart. And here's what I mean by that. In Scripture, we have what is known as the wisdom tradition. We see this in the Proverbs, which is this sort of traditional wisdom. We see this in Ecclesiastes, which is the wisdom for the people who have done everything right, and life still kicks them in the teeth. We have the subversive wisdom of Jesus and the countercultural wisdom of the cross. And wisdom, Scripture tells us, is a woman. So if wisdom were here today, she would be making plans to go to Ladies Who Lunch next Monday at El Tequila on 81st and Memorial at 12 p.m. And wisdom would be ordering a margarita. Wisdom is not the same as intelligence. It's not the same as IQ. Wisdom is no respecter of brain power or charisma or talent. Wisdom is something altogether different. Wisdom is about knowing how to live in the world in a vital way in which you are fully alive. This is wisdom. And at the center of this wisdom tradition is your heart. 
your heart is your center and your entire life flows from this center. This is why Proverbs 4 tells us, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. So here's what I mean by the non-dual nature of the heart. Proverbs 14 states, even in laughter, the heart may ache and joy may end in grief. The wisdom tradition points us to laughter and aching, rejoicing and grieving, all existing at the same time. Our hearts are full of all sorts of emotions, joy, heartbreak, anger, frustration, disappointment, contentment. Let me put this into context a little bit. So this week, I was in our yard playing t-ball with our daughter, Nora. You can follow along at the hashtag NoraGrowsUp to keep track of all of our comings and goings. And she was playing t-ball. It was the first night that we had bought it. She's having a great time. Our dog, our brand new dog, Grover, is running around the yard eating all of our flowers. And then I get a text message about the bombs that went off in Manchester. And they're not sure how many people have been killed. They know that dozens have already been injured. And then there's a report that eight-year-old Safi Rose was killed. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and rejoicing may end in grief. Or just a couple days ago, I was bent over, hot tears coming down my face, laughing so hard at how stupid our dog's new haircut looked. (laughs) He looked like a buffoon. And I'm on the phone with my wife, and she's like, are you okay? Are you safe? Because I couldn't speak, and all she could hear was me laughing and crying on the phone because of how stupid our dog looked. It was this moment of inexcusable joy. (laughs) And an hour before I picked him up from PetSmart, I had to sit down on the ground and take deep breaths because I had so much stress and anxiety about things happening this week. Are you happy or are you sad? Are you joyful? Are you downtrodden? If you are a human being with a heart beating inside of your chest, the answer is usually yes. Sometimes you are two opposite things at the very same time, and this is the non-dual nature of the heart. This is living from a place that acknowledges life is not black and white, but life is full of paradox and contradiction and gray area, and a non-dual heart, a heart unified with itself, knows it doesn't need to fix everything. This matters because living in a place of dual awareness, a place of black and white, living from a place that has to make sense of everything, this leads to an inability to handle the dark and stormy realities inside of us. This is why issues of doubt and questioning are hard for some people. But the church needs to be able to stomach people's doubts and people's questions, 
Because if people aren't given an outlet and a safe place to process their doubts and their questions, those things will turn into other things. Things like anger and cynicism and apathy. We need, in Dr. Green's words, fish people. The people that can stomach the Jonas of our day until they're ready to turn and embrace all that God has for them. A call to a fully alive life, a life full of wisdom and unity is one grounded in a non-dual reality of the heart. The second movement is this unity of community, and I promise I didn't know that rhymed when I wrote it down. At the ground floor of unity within the body of Christ is not agreement and is not uniformity, but a deep sense of belonging as sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. We belong to God and to one another. Until the year 1054, we were one people. And once we found a reason to divide, we looked for any reason to divide. And our divisions are oftentimes just an exercise in admiring ourselves. Oh, yeah, well, here's what we think about the Trinity. Oh, yeah, well, here's what we think about sanctification. Oh, yeah. You get the idea. We divide over doctrine. We divide over practice. We divide over belief. But early Christians were not called the belief. They were called the way. Because being faithful is more about how we live and move in the world than it is simply believing all the right stuff about God. Being faithful is not just about rearranging our mental furniture. It has to change the way in which we live. This is why in the Jewish tradition, when they're ready to teach their children Torah, they don't begin with the story of Genesis. They begin with Leviticus with the laws, because they want to teach their children that before it matters what you believe, it matters first and foremost how you live in the world. I keep coming back to the image that Dr. Green gave us a few weeks ago that we are all on this journey in search of God, and God keeps leading us to the doorsteps of our enemies, because it seems that our ability to love God well is dependent on our ability to love our enemies, what if we can only love God as much as the person we love the least? How would we approach our enemy, our neighbor, our family? Bishop Quentin Moore, who is the presiding bishop of this communion that we belong to as a community, he asks this question. If our enemies know that we are one, why don't we? When a Coptic church in Egypt is bombed on Palm Sunday, ushering in death rather than the triumphal entry of Jesus. It was not because they were Coptic. Most of us don't even know what that means. It was because they were Christian. Our unity is based on blood, and we need to be reminded of this. Have you seen this new trailer for this movie, Wonder, that's been circulating? If you haven't, you will cry. I promise you. But it's this story about this little boy, and he's undergone a number of plastic surgeries and reconstructive surgeries, and it's left his face full of scars. And so he wears this space helmet 
because he's so concerned with how he looks until he can't wear it any longer at school. And his mom, who is played by Julia Roberts at one point in the film, or at least in the trailer, she says something true about her son to her son. And if you're a parent, you're totally prepared for the boy's response. He says, you have to say that. You're my mom. And she looks at him and tells him, no, I have to say that because I'm the person who knows you the best. We speak unity into the body because on some level we know the most true thing about one another, that we are sons and we are daughters and we are beloved and we belong to one another. So maybe this is the narrow path. Maybe this is the road less traveled, that when everyone else is concerned with us versus them, who is in and who is out, who is welcome and who is not, that we are the ones that are called to simply hold the doors open and speak truth into one another's lives. In fact, the Gospels, the only people who ever felt unwelcome in the presence of Jesus were the people who were concerned with drawing lines in legalism about who is in and who is out. Jesus is not about legalism. Jesus is about belonging. This is the Jesus that appears to his disciples after being crucified by the religious institutions of his day, and he simply makes them breakfast. This is the God that every time we think he desires sacrifices on an altar, he leads us to a table and offers us a meal instead. This is what we see in Acts chapter 2, and as evangelicals, we love to hang our hat on verse 47 that claims, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. But we have to ask the question, what were they doing? So let's look at the text. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the environment of salvation. Not making sure everyone prayed the sinner's prayer, not hounding one another on doctrine or transubstantiation or consubstantiation or penal substitutionary atonement or pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, rapture theory or proper exegesis or forming appropriate hermeneutics. (laughs) No, they shared meals. They were together. They prayed They sold their stuff so other people could have stuff. This is the environment of salvation. This is the environment of unity. And in a way, this is the answer to Jesus' prayer. Cyprian, one of the early church fathers, said, No one can have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. Our ability to be unified with God is somewhat dependent on our ability to be unified as a body. This third way, this way of living and being human that Jesus came to show us requires that we walk this kind of path. 
toward unity and oneness, grounded in belonging as beloved. Not uniformity, not agreement, not tribalism, but belonging. And lastly, the third movement that I believe we're called to step into is the movement of unity with God, or alternatively, Trinity as gift. Your life is a gift. And yes, in a cliche sense, this is always true, that your life is precious, and it is a gift. But when we think about gift in those terms, we think about our lives as a gift given to us, when in reality, our lives are called to be a gift given back to God and to one another. As Christians, we are called to be broken open and poured out for the world, offering our lives back to God as gift. There's a piece of Christian art by Russian iconographer Andrei Rublev that was created in the 15th century called The Hospitality of Abraham, or simply the Trinity. The title, The Hospitality of Abraham, comes from the story in Genesis 18, when it says the Lord came to visit Abraham, and the scriptures tell us that Abraham looked up and saw three men standing near him. We don't know exactly what this means. All we know is that the text tells us that God appeared, and then three men arrive at Abraham's tent. But even then, even when God shows up and Abraham instinctually prepares a meal, he lacks the imagination to consider that he might be invited to the table. His response after they show up is to rush off to prepare a meal and place it before them, but he doesn't sit with them. He leaves and goes back to his tent and observes them from afar. Abraham doesn't have the conceptual space to imagine a God that would not only invite him to the table, but would actually serve him a meal. He can't imagine a God that would not only share his cup, but would also wash his feet. So instead, he watches from afar. I want us to focus on this image for a moment. This icon shows the depiction of the Trinity eating and drinking and infinite hospitality and utter enjoyment between themselves. Richard Rohr, a Franciscan priest, says, if we take this reality of God as Trinity seriously, we have to say in the beginning was the relationship. I want you to look around the table. To the left in gold, we see the Father, perfect, an image of fullness, wholeness. In the middle, we see Christ, and his two fingers pointed signify that he has put spirit and matter, divinity and humanity together with himself. To the right, we see the spirit. The green sash is a symbol of growth, almost like photosynthesis. Our growth in the spirit is a result of the work of the sun, and we are absorbing his life as we are absorbed into him. And it seems as though in this image that the spirit's hands are stretched toward an open place at the table. Some art historians believe that there on the front of the table was originally a mirror 
so that the faithful people using this image to guide and focus their prayers would see themselves as being invited by the divine to participate in this sort of life as gift. The glory of God in the world is activated by our participation, offering our lives as gift to God and gift to one another. But as we approach this table and every table, we remember that we are all guests. We're never the host. God sets this guest list, and all are welcome. That they may be one, Lord, hear our prayer.